0: Afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good well. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, thanks for that uh, amazing talk about giving. Awesome. Thank you for an amazing hymn uh, before we open Scripture. Uh, happy, happy Palm Sunday. You're, you've been thinking about this all week. Palm Sunday this Sunday. Uh, it is a significant moment. Um, it, it is a time when Christians for a long time, have, at this time in the year, tried to grapple with the story. What's challenging is, not ch- it's not challenging, it's also very beautiful, is that we try at this point to deepen our understanding of this moment in Jesus' life. By doing so, I think we discover, if we didn't already know, everything that Jesus thinks he's up to. Like this, this last week is a, is a moment in the history of the world where we really witness what God cares about, <laughs> what he's up to. And it's an opportunity to kind of sit with the story. And we also know how the story ends up and how it unfolds. So it's not like we like intellectually like, cut off what we already know. But we take this moment in the story. We're going to read today about Jesus coming in uh, to the holy city for Passover and see how we just kind of are left today in a kind of state of suspension about what's coming. We know what's coming, but the challenge is for us to re-enter at that point and set what we're feeling today with what we know is coming. And it's surprising. I think every year it's surprising. I think we, we need these kind of practices to cultivate a sense of wonder with the very scriptures we love so much. Uh, but to sense again. Uh, all that there is in the crucifixion and then the resurrection and in the gift of God's Holy Spirit for his people. Um, so we're going to look at uh, the gospel according to Matthew today um, But you're you're going to witness, if you're not familiar with this passage, uh, you probably know about it if you haven't read it, Um, but you get a a picture, a portrait of Jesus that is less um, talked about, maybe. Jesus as a kind of uh, like a street performer, provoking everybody, (laughs) Whatever your images are of Jesus, that he's just concerned with um, creating Christianity, a religion of the soul or something like that, so that souls may go to heaven. What you're going to see today is a very political Jesus. A Jesus who is not at all afraid to ruffle feathers. And we'll sit. I think many of us uncomfortably with what we read today. I know. I, I know. I have been all week, uh, just in thinking about uh, this text. But this is this is a moment. Um, I've mentioned this before. I think I mentioned this before. But in each of at least what we call the synoptic, well, in the Gospel of John as well, in the, in the Gospel accounts in the New Testament, uh, there's a moment when. Jesus and his disciples start to make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, And we spend a, a good long while on that journey. And going to the holy city for Passover would have been quite an experience, I think. It makes me think of like, well, things are changed now because of Amazon and whatever else where we buy our... Uh, Christmas gifts. But do you remember the mall around December, like Black Friday on? It's like buzzing. And most of us hate it. Some of us love it. But it's just that I remember working retail and like it was my favorite time of year because people just seem to be in a happier mood, though there are some grumps and Scrooges out there who don't want to, you know, spend their money. Uh, but, but it's this moment where like everyone's coming back home, right? So Jerusalem's not a big city. So you, you don't, don't think like Manhattan or something like that or, or Los Angeles. Jerusalem's a small town. But maybe 30,000 people, which actually from where I grew up, of like 2,000 people. 30,000 people is the metropolis. That's like the kind of city with a stoplight and a McDonald's and a movie theater, all of the amenities I didn't have growing up. But Jerusalem nonetheless is, is a s- smaller town. 30,000-ish estimates between 30,000 you see all the way up to maybe 50,000. But on this week, the population goes up quite a bit. 180,000 are some estimates. So you can imagine a small town and everybody's coming home for the Passover celebration, which is that moment when the Israelites celebrate their freedom from bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt. And it's an identity forming week, (laughs) holiday They don't say, this is when they let our ancestors out of Egypt. They say, this is when God brought us out of Egypt. We're them and they're us. And you come to town to remember that. And so, remember, Jerusalem is, you know, they're under Roman occupation. And right looking over on the north side of the temple is Fortress Antonia, and the government, the Roman government, is watching very carefully at all the Jews do as they're worshiping, keeping order. And so you've got to imagine, on a week where the holiday is a celebration of throwing off the yoke of oppression to become free, pretend you're Rome for a minute, you heighten security, you're paying attention, right? Right? You know they tend to get uh hot under the collar these Jews on the the Passover so we better keep you know you can ima- imagine the 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 pre-meetings before the holiday like just hey, be stay alert guys But this is a this is a time when everyone's there. You can imagine the hillside full of people camping out in the cities. Imagine the temple complex area, like thirty thousand people who normally are around, let's say, inhabit this town, but now everyone's in town. You can imagine going to the temple would like be like going to what is it called? The Westport Mall or something like that? West Westfield Mall, yeah. Like that. But everybody's there. It's full of people. There is a buzz and people are encouraged and they are celebrating who they are in light of God's great mercy. And in this moment, Jesus uh, is going to challenge everyone to reimagine what the kingdom of God looks like. What it looks like when God comes to reign and he has chosen this moment because he is not afraid of what they're going to think of him, what they're going to say about him or what they're going to do to him. In fact, he's relying on the fact that this will get him in just enough hot water that he'll probably be executed. Only not probably, he knows it's going to happen. But as readers, we think, yeah, this will probably do him in. <laughs> this, these actions on this, in, these, in this text are enough to get you in a lot of trouble. Let, let's read it. Matthew 21. When they had come near Jerusalem, they had reached Bethphage the Mount, at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, just say this. The Lord needs them and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell daughter Zion, the daughter of Zion, look. Your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the ground and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him... And that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus is, it's the end of subtlety. You may have noticed if you've read the Gospel accounts, Jesus will often do something, heal somebody, and say, now, now keep it quiet. I don't need all that smoke. <laughs> I don't need all the noise. You're going to wreck my ability to go into a town if you go blabbing about what I've just done. So keep it on the down low. Jesus is often trying to... to do his ministry with a certain amount of subtlety because he has a plan which culminates in Jerusalem. The days of being subtle, the days of keeping a secret are way over now after this. There is no turning back. What Jesus has just done may go under the radar, but let's, let's pay attention for a moment. Here, here's Jesus coming from the north, from Galilee, the kind of like, uh, like a lot of my family's from Alabama, um, on my father's side. Like, when you think Alabama, you don't think uh, Yale, or like Connecticut, or like the intellectual elites. You don't really think of that from Wisconsin either, probably. But imagine a prophet showing up, coming to like, whatever, Berkeley. And he came from like Lodi, Wisconsin. Like, would you be intimidated? Like, no. Like, he's a backwater, like, he's from the woods kind of guy. So here's this group of pilgrims coming from the north to celebrate in Jerusalem. And, and they come to uh, Bethphage, uh, which means House of the Fig. They come to this town just east of the city near, near the Mount of Olives. And Jesus from there sends his disciples To go get a donkey for him. Now, who planned this? Who planned all of this? Like Jesus getting a donkey and riding down the hill? Who did that? Jesus did that. Jesus planned that. Jesus has set this up in advance. He's created a situation wherein it will be unmistakable what he thinks about himself and what he thinks about his ministry And so he sets up a situation where they bring him a a donkey and her colt and oddly it says he sits on them, which I don't understand how that would work. Like I guess you straddle both. Uh, Interpreters have puzzled over that little uh, confusing bit there. But but Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives up to the city. The Mount of Olives is a pretty steep hill. You go down through the Kidron Valley and you go up, To Jerusalem, and the first thing you're going to encounter after you get in the city is going to be the temple. But Jesus takes a route that's very familiar, and he's doing it riding a donkey. And Matthew says this is to recall or fulfill what the prophet said. And he quotes Isaiah 62 and Zechariah chapter 9, he says, Tell daughter Zion. Look at your king is coming to you on a donkey. Now, the image, of course, is not a war image, right? You don't go into battle with donkeys. But that's not the central point here. The point is that the donkey is a sign of a royal procession. This is what you ride in a time of peace. And actually, Zechariah, Matthew leaves this bit out from the part he quotes from the prophet Zechariah. But Zechariah says that this king who's coming, and it's unmistakable that Zechariah has in mind David, one of the Davidic kings, he says that he is righteous and having been saved. The king is coming on his donkey, having been delivered, presumably by God, from his battle. And in fact, King David, when he was at war with his son, imagine that, going to actual war with one of your children, and he and he is delivered from uh, death, delivered from his own son, David takes this exact route on a donkey. Jesus is doing this, and it's some mistake, well, Who does he think he is? Not only that, there's crowds chanting Psalm 118, Save us, Son of David. This is royal. Imagine the king and the queen coming to Palm Springs on a stagecoach and driving by slowly waving. That's the image. It's royal. Not only that, the people with him are throwing their garments down in front of him. They did that for King Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. Not only that, they're going to the the trees nearby and cutting off palm fronds and throwing them in front of him as he goes. Something they did to both Simon and Judas Maccabeus in the, the period just before Jesus when they went in and cleansed the temple. And as they cleansed the temple, the Jews came in with the palm fronds celebrating. This, my point here. This is royal. You don't look at what Jesus is doing and say, oh, what a weird way to come to town. (laughs) You say, wait a second. And it says, what does the text say? It says that the city was in turmoil. The city was stern. All these pilgrims home for the holy week. And here comes this northerner with this crowd chanting royal hymns, and he's coming to town, and the whole city is like outside. There's a dude riding a donkey down the hill with a crowd around him, and he thinks he's the king. Who is this dude? And the people in front of him is Jesus from the north. You, what did you expect, right? Jesus is making a statement. There is no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. He thinks he's royal. And we'll have to leave it to us to agree or not, whether in fact he is a king. How you doing? Let's read on. This alone is provocative. This alone would cause people to take a second look. But that's only part of what he does on this trip up to Jerusalem. Jesus then entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that He did and heard the children crying out in the temple and saying, "Hosanna to the Son of David, they became angry and said to Him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have perfected praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city and spent the night there. Jesus' first order of business, having come to town in an unmistakable royal move, goes right up to the temple, which would be the equivalent, what he's just done here. Imagine booking a flight to Washington, D.C., scheduling a trip to the White House, bringing with you an American flag a can of kerosene, and a a book of matches. You're going to go into the rose garden, and when you get there, you're going to light an American flag on fire. You're going to stand there. That's the equivalent. How many of you are uncomfortable? Yeah, I know it. That's the equivalent of what Jesus is doing here. He is provoking. He is going to the hub. He is going to the capital city. And he is going up to where all authority sits. And the whole system which the temple represents, Jesus goes in and critiques it. This is not good enough. And we can imagine, where are you, when you if you were nearby? And you've got to imagine this happens fast. It's loud. There's a lot of people and it's over in an instant. But you hear about it. How do you feel? That dude who came into town on the donkey, he came in and he knocked over the tables where they're selling sacrifices for the poor people. Who does he think he is? You don't come around here with that stuff. Go back home. Go to the north if you want to pull that garbage. This is Jerusalem. We don't do that stuff here. But Jesus Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Well, they say, how can, you, how, how can you let these kids go on praising you like the, you would only praise God? I'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting two more prophets. How are you doing? You still love Jesus? In the temple, now this is, a, this is a, a model of the temple that used to sit in, what was it, like the Holy Hotel or the Jerusalem Hotel? I think it was in like the lobby there. It's in the museum now in Jerusalem, but it's like a two-scale model of the entire old city of Jerusalem. Pretty awesome. But this is what the temple would look like. It's huge. King Herod uh, was really smitten with Roman architecture, so he made it his quest to have these great architectural endeavors. And the temple was one of the things he wanted to make the temple awesome. But the temple has these kind of ser- or like gradations of holiness. Follow me for a second here. But there, as you're in the temple, the closer you go into the temple, you are moving to smaller spaces and you are going up in elevation. And in the, at the innermost part is where the Lord, the God of Israel, is said to dwell uniquely in the innermost room. And it is the most holy room and only the high priest goes in there once a year for the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But you've got to protect that holiness because it's dangerous. And so they created this sophisticated system of, of boundaries and railings to make sure that the impure don't get too close. And, and right here, uh, let's see, you can see, see that little railing there? That marked the limit of where a Gentile could go. You don't go past that. Now, it doesn't mean that only Gentiles were in that space. Uh, Jews could be there too. But if you were a Gentile, in fact, uh, within the last hundred years, uh, they discovered a, a stone, um, which they believe was sat on that railing. That railing that I just showed you. They, they found these stones that they believe were inscriptions that sat on this railing. And then not too long after that, they found another one, same thing. And Josephus, who's a how you doing? Josephus, a first century historian, writes about these signs which sat on this railing. And do you know what the signs said that sat on this railing? They said, No foreigner is to enter beyond the railing and the sanctuary and the forecourt. Whoever is caught will be held responsible for the death which ensues. Another way of saying, if you come past this railing and you're a Gentile, you're going to die and it's your fault. (laughs) This is what gets Paul arrested, by the way. Paul, the apostle in Acts chapter 21, they lie and they said that Paul did just that. He brought a foreigner beyond the railing. But there's a specific designated area for Gentiles to come because not only Jews would come to town. Some of us would also be taken with the God of Israel and join in with the celebration and come and travel and be there. And there's space created for them to come and worship. But within a year or so, do you know what the high priest did? He moved the whole trading and money-changing enterprise right into the place where the Gentiles could come and worship. He put up, like, this will be a good place It'll be better if we put the money changers and stuff right here, because then they're closer. And they, you know, But that's where the Gentiles are. Hey, that's all right. Like it's the Gentiles, right? And it's not wrong to have money changing and buying sacrifices. Do you want to really travel with goats and lambs from all that distance? This is a concession that's made. You can come to town for the holiday and buy these sacrifices and change the money and use the temple shekel. Have you ever been to another country and had to exchange your money? Something like that. But but Jesus goes after this. He sees what's going on and He goes and He tips the tables over in an act of Criticism. Of the whole thing. And he says. This is meant to be a house of prayer. For the nations. But y'all religious folks. Y'all wealthy leaders here. You've turned this into a den of robbers. You're not thinking about the nations at all. In fact. You think that the temple is evidence. That the nations will be condemned. And that you're safe. You think that the temple guarantees that you're safe and everyone else is not. Jesus says, no, no, no. The temple is an indication. It's not the end. The whole point of Scripture was not that there would be a building in Jerusalem that would house God. Jesus is saying the temple was always meant to be an indication of God coming, of God arriving. It's supposed to show you that God wants to gather the world to worship Him. He loves everybody. But your system and your obsession with your religion has created a situation where you've totally missed the will of God. It's kind of frightening. Jesus is like gloves off. And Jesus isn't doing something that the prophets haven't done. We're almost there. Look at this is from Jeremiah. This is one of the verses he quotes. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from uh, uh, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you who gather who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is a temple of the Lord. This is a temple of the Lord. This is a temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doing, if you... Truly act justly with, with one another. If you do not oppress the alien, the orphan and the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are. Trusting deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to the place, my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it for its wick, the wickedness of my people. I'll stop there. It's heavy. It's heavy, isn't it? Jesus is doing the same thing that Jeremiah does. He goes right up to the most, the, the most political, theologically imbued place in town and he's telling people, There's a different way. There's a way that's not gauged and measured by sacrifices and religion and corruption. Jesus thinks he's God. He thinks he can come into God's house and reform it. The only person that could do that would be God. And when, when, the infants are, when the young people are praising Him, says, haven't you read that this is what happens? Kids praise God. In other words, they're saying, I'm God. <laughs> I'm God. This is my house. Like, I'm the temple. It's not the point. I'm the point. And I've come to draw everyone to myself. But see, people don't like that kind of change When you're so obsessed with your religion, when you're hugging it, this is the temple of the Lord, this is the temple of the Lord, we are safe here. We can do whatever we want. No one's watching. We're in the temple. We went to church. I read my Bible. I shared my faith. I'm safe. I can do whatever I want. I can extort because it's been sanctified because I am an Israelite and I'm standing in the temple. And so I get to do kind of whatever I want. I'm safe. Jesus is like, nope, that's not how it works. It's not about your biology, like you're safer because you're born Jewish. It's not because your religion, you're safer because you check all the right boxes. He invites them to a different way. Now, here's the, here's the kicker. Who sees what's going on? In this story, who gets it? The blind, the lame, and the kids They're the ones that see what's happening. Now, the temple was always meant to be that place from which the waters of healing went out to the world. And lo and behold, within the temple, which has only become an indication of itself, within that building is the Messiah and healing is flowing out from him. And the only people that see it are those who are willing to to jump ship with their whatever it is they thought was correct so that they could embrace what they see happening. They're open. They're praising God. It's the blind and the lame, not the powerful and the the religious leadership that's excited about what Jesus is doing. Jesus just insulted all of them. And they are not going to let Him get away with that. There is no way Jesus is walking away from this situation. He's angered everybody. Why would he do that? Why be so heavy-handed? How many of you are sitting there and you're kind of scared? I feel uncomfortable with this. Like, are you, I'm, are you talking to me, Jesus? Like, does this apply to me? Are you mad at me? Am I, am I, I don't, am, is it me, like, standing in this room? I don't, I don't think... If you're, and if you're worried about that, guess what? You're doing pretty good. <laughs> if that's something you care about. But this is a larger point. That whatever the kingdom of God looks like, this royal king coming to town, it's not to reform the system and to work within it to make things better. He's coming and he's saying this, because you've totally rejected God, is over. And in a few years, the Romans level this place. And he tells them that's going to happen. He's like, this is over. But there's something new. That was never the point anyways, guys. There's something new in your midst. And you should pay attention to the blind and the lame and the kids. Ask yourself, what do they see? Because what they're seeing is what God is up to. Come and follow me. Now, where does Jesus go from there? Up to the hill where they nail him to the tree. There's a different kind of kingdom right now. And it's going to look like, rather than supporting some system, challenging wrongdoing in the world, and it could make you lose your life. But in that, God is at work. God is, this building is going over the edge. Quit obsessing about it. This building was meant to point to me. Here I am. Follow me. This is where healing and new life lives. We'll wrap up here. Jesus continues. In the morning, when, the, they return, when he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the side of the road, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once the disciples saw it and they were amazed, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be lifted up and be thrown into the sea, it will be done. Whatever you ask for in prayer, your faith, uh, with faith you will receive. Jesus rides into town like a king, goes up to the, the most heated, tense place in town where the Romans are, where the leaders are. He says, this is not going to work for me. I'm going to Calvary. I am, I am God. He goes out from there and he goes up. The first thing he does is he comes to a fig tree, no fruit on the fig tree, and he seems unnecessarily harsh on the fig tree. <laughs> Why why be so angry? Like, he worked up an appetite from all that confronting the authorities, and so now he's like, dang, I wanted a fig. And this tree has no figs, and so I hate fig trees, right? That's That's not the idea. See, Matthew's put this story about the fig tree right after the story about the temple on purpose, because the fruitless tree is the dead religion. The fruitless tree is the temple. And he says, don't be amazed by that. You guys, you could pray and say to this mountain, what mountain? What mountain? The mountain where the temple sits. Be thrown into the sea. More is going to happen than this fig tree. You see that? Jesus is like something new is among us. And the kids and the blind see it. There's an old James Brown song James Brown fans i 'm the one, all right, yeah, so he he has a, he has a song called "Blind Man can see it I love it it 's a high, heavily sampled song in, in hip hop culture, but either way that 's the idea here: blind man can see it it 's ironic. the blind see it now i want to i 'm tempted right now to say now here 's what we do with all of this here 's what you do with all of this, but here 's the challenge. For this story, I think. For us to sit with this, however uncomfortably it may be. Take it on yourself, read through it this week. But to sit with it, because what's unfolding is the very thing that gets Jesus crucified. But even in that crucifixion, something else is at work. Jesus isn't just here to make fun of the temple, to curse fig trees, to show that he's king. He's up to something. But the way this all starts is to challenge the powers that be. But this is a vision of a different kind of kingdom, where the ones who benefit are not those who are already just wealthy, like Darren's message, but the blind and the needy. If there is any real application for this, for us at this moment, it's this wonderful opportunity we have to go to the Coachella Valley Rescue Mission next week to, to see that true religion, as Jesus sees it, is exactly what James says it is, to take care of those in need. That's our job, guys. That's, what, that's actually our religion. Our religion isn't the songs. Our religion isn't like, oh, what do you guys do as Christians? Well, we sing, we pray, we read our Bibles, and we invite people to do that with us. And we invite people to come to church and sing with us. Like, No, that's not, that's not the point. In fact, read through the New Testament and tell me where you see that that's what their whole goal was. Their goal seems to always be to care for those in need. Healing goes out from wherever Jesus lives. That's us. Next week, we're going to be around people who have fallen on harder times than probably a lot of us right now. Maybe not, but probably. Where are we at? Where are we at when we go in there? Whether we came to sing, or is our attitude, we came to love, to give. It's a challenge to all of the things that we think are so important. It kind of moves the target, moves the goalpost, so that we see what God's really after. Is bigger than a religion. It's so awesome. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we thank you that you're humble. We thank you that you don't come charging with swords and and unchecked rage and hostility against us, but you come humbly and you summon us to yourself. And for anyone who turns to you, God, you. You provide healing and life. And though those who follow You experience hardship and even the cross, there's so much life, God. Help us to cling to You. Whatever thing You're challenging in our own lives or in our world, God, help us not to cling to things which aren't Your will. But to hear the the message of these stories where you ride into town announcing a different sort of kingdom, and to be like these children, wide eyed, open handed, open hearted, eager to see what you're up to. We thank you, Jesus, that you were courageous enough, bold enough to do the things which we needed done, to say the words which needed to be said and to die the death which needed to be died for our sake. We're grateful. Thank you for this wonderful holiday. We anticipate Easter next week with so much joy because nothing will be the same because of the resurrection. There is so much hope among your people because of what you did these days in Jerusalem all those years ago. We're so grateful. We thank you for the bread and the cup, which we now uh, gather around. We thank you that we can celebrate, not just like a funeral, but like a true communion. Not with a dead figure from the past, but with the living Lord. You, God, who make your home with us. We thank you for this bread, which reminds us of the cross and the blood, which reminds us of the sacrifice. We thank you that in this bread and cup we see power beyond our understanding, a power that the world is unfamiliar with. We thank you, God. It's in Christ Jesus. Amen.